Without further ado, we turn to our scripture passage, which, which comes from Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 50. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 50. And then we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And from last week, what we learned is how the disciples, they bicker and fight about one simple subject here is about who is the greatest. And they're like kids bickering with each other, um, saying, I'm better than you. And it's such a childish act. And yet what Jesus does, I love what Jesus does in that passage, is that he brings a child before them and he tells them, whoever receives a child in my name, that is true greatness. To serve a child that can't give you anything back. That's true greatness in my kingdom. So it's a very heart-to-heart moment. And let's, and this passage here, he's still continuing his lecture, but do the disciples get it? Do they get what true greatness looks like? That's what we're going to take a look at here. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 50 here. And if you have your places there, can you stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word here? These are God's holy and inspired and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand, it causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. Thus goes your reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, Friends, please be seated. Would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer here? Lord, as we come before you, some of these words, they might strike us a little bit differently today. But we pray for grace to be able to understand and for your spirit to do his work within our lives and heart. Teach us what it really means to be salt. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, when you think about this word holy, right, this word, what automatically comes to your mind? How do you describe this word holy? It's kind of a difficult word to define because it's, it's not really a word used in everyday language. So maybe when we think about the word holy, we think about words like sacred or pious or someone that's very devoted, someone that's soft-spoken. And we say that's, that's a depiction of what holiness is, true holiness. 
And these are all good descriptions, and they touch upon aspects of what holiness is, but not the full depth of meaning. I like to think about this word holiness in this way. I think about an image. One here I want to share with you is a picture of, if we could get it on the PowerPoint here, it's a, there we go. This is by the great artist, Millie Choi. Uh, I don't know if you know what this is, but I, I imagine there are two fish that she drew, right? And she draws so many paintings and stuff like this that I, I kind of have to throw them away because there's so much, but I want to encourage the artistic expression. So every time she shows me, I say, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then it goes to the trash and then the next one comes, right? And then compare this with this painting here. A painting by Sai, I'm going to probably butcher the last name, Twombly. Guess how much this retails for? $42 million. $42 million for something that I feel like my daughter can do too. This is what I think about holiness for some reason. Is that framed in a right place with a, a I guess, a high-demand uh, artist and, and placed in a spotlight like this, it's $42 million. Holiness is about God separating for his purpose to set apart that he can take ordinary pieces of works and make it special, holy, set apart for his purpose. I believe a lot of us, we live our lives uh, with picture drawing one as if our lives are just ordinary and that's just it and it doesn't really matter what I do with my life and so it's just going to go to the trash can anyways and that's kind of how we view our lives when really when God says holy, you are a holy people, a holy community that I have set apart. It has power to that. It has purpose to that. It has meaning to that. When God calls his church, he calls us a holy people set apart for him. That's what we're called for. And what we're going to explore is what, these, what being holy entails. It entails three things for us today in our passage. One part is community. Second part is this cruciform life that God is calling us to. And last of all, a continual encouragement for all of us. These three components that we need in our call to be holy Let's look at the first part here, community. You ever try to have a heart-to-heart -heart moment with someone to really get through to them? I don't know, maybe it's an intervention with a group of your friends to really get through to your one friend that something must happen or a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with one of your kids and you just want them to get the lesson. And yet as you, you know, impart so much compassion and warmth to what you're teaching them, maybe about life, maybe it's something serious, and, you know, you finally feel like you got to them, and they only turn to you and say, can I have a snack? That's like, it, it defeats the whole purpose of that lesson. And that's exactly what kind of happens here, is that as Jesus pours out his heart to his disciples, right, and he tells them this lesson about what true greatness looks like, that if you receive a child in my name, that's true greatness. And all of a sudden, John has this moment and he turns to Jesus and says, wait a minute, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And he says, they were not following us. We try to stop them because they were not following us. Notice this last phrase, following us. That John's main concern is not following Christ. 
Rather, it's about us. He must have felt a certain way watching this other person be so successful in casting out demons because a couple of verses ago, we saw that the disciples were unable to do, do that very act. And so for them to witness someone else be so successful at, at something that they were supposed to be good at probably made them a little salty, a little resentful. Jesus, why are they able to do that? It's not fair. So Jesus has to gently remind John, for the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. You know what this automatically made me think of? Here in Fremont, in the city of Fremont, we have at least four to five other churches named, lo and behold, New Life Fremont. And one of those churches actually has a pastor named Amos, which is super interesting to me. I'm, seems like a great guy. I'm sure he's a great person. Uh, and some of you kind of know about this and you were alarmed by this and you express how we need to just change our name. You know, we need to really stand apart. And I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. And it, and, and it will be in the works. So if you guys have any suggestions, let me know. But let me ask you this. Let's pause for a mo- moment. How much of this desire to change our name, something like that, how much of this is about more about following, uh, of more people to follow Christ than the fact that people aren't following us? That's what I want us to think about. Because it's easy for us to start comparing with what other churches and ministries are perhaps doing that perhaps we need this kind of ministry, we need those kind of people, we need these kind of events, we need to Instagram it, influence it, whatnot. And yet how much of that is about we need more people to follow Christ rather than to follow us? Too easy, too easy to compare. Some of us might believe that we focus on the size of the church uh, to be the indication of our health, but the thing is, It's really the heartbeat of the community that will matter more. The heart of what our community is at. Verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That Jesus says, whoever does any act of kindness, no matter how big or how small it is, for the sake of his brother or sister, it's a ble- as a means of blessing. Uh, as a means of blessing, it's for uh, everyone involved. This is the heartbeat of what the community of the church is called to be. Guys, we believe as a reformed church. We believe in this concept of this means of grace. And in our catechism here, question eighty-eight on the PowerPoint here, it says defines this means of grace as this. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. What are they? They are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Basically, what this catechism is explaining is that the way that God creates and sustains faith is through these means of grace. Right? The the word, the sacraments, and prayer. But I would like to add a fourth element here. Community. Believe it or not, you and I are a means of grace towards one another. 
We're all a means of grace towards one another. When you come to church, that is not just for you, but the brother or sister that sits next to you. Think about it this way, like the presence of the kids every time they gather in this carpet, it's a reminder that as they look at their innocent faces, like, I got to grow as a person. Like their innocence challenges me to grow as a person so that I'm not hypocritical before them. Or the fact that there are Sundays where I come and it's super hard to really sing praises to God because of the, the kind of week that I've had. But when I hear someone else singing, someone else that truly believes in the words that they are singing, it's edifying. It's encouragement. And you might think, uh, and the presence of young adults, it brings, it brings a little different energy for the church. You know, you and I, we're, we're a means of grace to one another. That's what community is. And even during the three-minute greeting time, that might either be the most dreadful situation for some of you, or it might be the most life-giving thing. But that three minutes, it's actually the most unimportant, important thing that we can possibly do to simply just check in to see how our weeks were going. You all are a means of grace towards one another. And then there are the difficult people. If you know, then you know. If you don't, it might be you. But that's besides the point. I'm half joking. Believe it or not, that's a means of grace too. That's a means of grace too. The thing about big churches is that they have enough resources where it's easy to cover up the cracks. But in a place like this, oh man, you feel everything. You feel everything. In our minds, it's easy to think, if only we could take out some of the messiness of people's lives, some of the difficulties, then we can really thrive. But the thing is, it's through the messiness that God actually grows us together. That through the difficulty, if we're still able to extend cups of water for one another, we could still grow through that. Because how can I reject someone whom Christ embraces? How can I reject whom Christ embraces? I cannot. The thing is, we're all difficult people. And yet God extends more than just water towards us, but he gives us his means of grace towards us every week. Whether we want them, whether we need them, he still says, here, come here, I'll feed you. Come to my table. Guys, you and I, we're all called to be a means of grace for one another. So I want us to at least all admit one thing together and agree on this statement. Repeat after me. You guys ready? I am difficult. Say it with more conviction there. <laughs> but God is merciful. So I'm daily learning how to give cups of water to another brother or sister. <laughs> Sorry, I should, have, I should have broken up a more. We need community because the cruciform life, it's not meant to be done alone. It's too difficult to just do alone. Which brings us to the second point here, the cruciform life. Spirituality, faith is not a private affair. 
It's not like politics where you know that everyone has their opinions, some greater, some to a lesser degree, but whether you are truthful to what you believe or not, you just sort of keep it to yourself and move on with your day like a normal person. That's not what faith is. Faith is meant to be done together. Look at verse 42 here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, don't get caught up with well the technicalities of what are the signs that I'm making someone else stumble because we all stumble. Rather, the point of emphasis here is that the health of our spiritual lives are accountable and actually depend on one another. That our spirituality depends on the spirituality of another, another person. To believe in Jesus is not your personal decision. It is not your personal opinion, nor is it your personal preference. It is a communal responsibility. Our faith is a communal responsibility. And the thing about faith is, it's more caught than it actually is taught. Faith is more caught than it actually is taught. Most of you, uh, Mike, uh, most of you didn't come to faith because it just made sense to you. There, there had to be someone in your life who really exemplified it for you, who really spent the time with you, prayed with you, taught you things, but also fed you, spent time with you, walked with you in your hardest times. And it's through catching these glimpses of faith that you yourself came to faith. See, faith is a communal responsibility that we all have towards one another. Man, my kids are in this stage where they're calling me out for a lot of things. Like, um, I'll tell them, uh, my kids might say something like, dang it, and I'll say, hey, 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 don't say things like that. And then my son will turn to me and says, why can I not? I, I say, because you just shouldn't. He says, but you do it. Why can't I? Or my, my daughter will tell me uh, later on as I rush her into the car, she'll tell me later at night while I'm putting her down in bed, says, Appa, I didn't like how you were mean to me when you told me to go in the car seat. I was taking my time. It's like these moments, I feel this the splurge of pride that says, Dude, I know better than you. I take care of you guys. How dare you correct me? And I could stay in that way, but I realized telling them I'm, I'm sorry is so much more important. You know, parents, do you realize like apologizing to your kids is super important because there's only one person that should never apologize, which is God himself. And you are not him. So it's important to demonstrate kind of what repentance looks like for them. Because faith is more caught than actually is taught. It's a communal responsibility for all, all of us. See, in light of being accountable to one another, we're called to this cruciform life, which means intentionally living for God. And here's what Jesus describes that life, that if your hand, it causes you to sin, then cut it off. If your feet causes you to sin, then cut that off as well. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck that out. Because why? It's better for you that to happen than for your whole self to be thrown into hell. The thing is, if all of us obeyed these verses, all of us would be limbless, all of us would wear eye patches for the rest of our lives. This language that Jesus uses is hyperbolic language. 
exact, exaggerated language to describe the utmost attentiveness to our spiritual lives. Obedience to Christ. And you know, the thing about obedience, it's not, it's not like a, it's not a popular word. We don't really like it. We think obedience is opposed to grace. What happened to the grace factor, you know? You might think obeying God sounds oppressive at times. That God, so, that God frees us from our sin and death, but we all still have our desires. We still want what we want. Maybe after a long day, all you want to do is, you know, watch Netflix or mindlessly scroll on your phone. And, you know, I'm, I'm free to do so. But as you're about to do so, maybe you think, but Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not free to do Netflix and, and you know, veg, veg, vegetate, whatever. But you're free to read the word. Or you might be tempted, maybe after a long day's work, to uh, you know, uh, calm yourself, soothe yourself through, through, through whatever uh, self-medication form, and you're about to do it, but in comes God says, no, 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 you're free to read your Bible. You might think a lot of things, desires that you have that will fulfill you, and then in comes God to say, no, 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 you're free to do something else that you don't really want to do. I have this feeling that we look at obedience to God as God keeping us from doing what we want. Shouldn't God just accept us as we are? But the thing is, you can't accept yourself as you are, how you are. Isn't that why we're always dissatisfied? Always dissatisfied how we look, how we feel, how we ha- what we have, who we know, who knows us. It bothers us. If hell is an unquenchable fire, then what do you call an unquenchable dissatisfaction with yourself? And only God can truly accept you for who you are because he can also change you to what you shall become. The cruciform life is about God bringing out the best of you. That's what it's about. Kathy asked me um, this week, when's the last time you kissed Miles? When's the last time you've been affectionate with him? I couldn't really remember because I was, um, you know, so she kind of encouraged me to do that. But in my own mind, I, I, I realized I don't really hug him or I'm really affectionate with him in these ways because in my mind, this is not what I was used to growing up. And I, my concept of manliness, it doesn't consist of giving hugs or kisses for my son. That's just what I knew. But as Kathy encouraged me to this, uh, I think like Wednesday morning he woke up, you know, and he came into the kitchen. And the first thing I did was just give him a hug and I kissed him on the forehead and kissed him on his cheek. And he, he kind of said, oh, that's great. And then he went back to eat his breakfast. But you know what I noticed? This might be subjective, right? I felt like he listened to me better this whole week just by that little act. But more importantly, I saw God better. It made me think about Luke 16 of the prodigal son, how he runs off from his father and then the father finally gets his son back. And what does the prodigal son, uh, prodigal father really do? He hugs and embraces his son. My son is back. Here was I stuck on what I just know. I think this is what sin is. 
we think about it in just doing, uh, just keep avoiding ourselves from doing bad things, when really what sin is doing is it's keeping us from becoming the best version of ourselves. And because God has his, uh, God's intent, his heart for your life is to call you holy, to bring the best version of you out. That's what the cruciform life is for. But sometimes we lose our way. And we just need a continual presence to encourage us. Which is the last point here. What does that continual presence look like? See, at the end of Jesus' teaching, he, he presents this mixed metaphor, which is kind of odd. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. It's a little random when you look at it. But the place that salt, to understand salt, we turn to Leviticus 2.13. Well, you'll notice here on the PowerPoint that salt is used for the most holy of offerings. And so salt has this metaphor of, of purification. Now you mix salt with fire, which a lot of times has to do with judgment. And the thing is, most commentators agree it's an odd passage here, but fire also represents trials in this context. So what Jesus is getting at is that the more you live this cruciform life, the more you will face trials, and those trials aren't getting in the way of you becoming more and more like Christ. Rather, those trials are refining you like fire. That God's ultimate heart for you is to refine you. I think this passage is quite difficult, especially as we witness suffering. You know, as you think about Gaza and everything that's happening there, and all, like I just think about the kids the whole time. I don't care what ethnicity or nationality that you represent. It's just the fact that they don't deserve this. And you think about those moments, and you think, what is the point of becoming holy as we suffer, as the world suffers in this way? What is the point of becoming holy when per- perhaps our personal individual struggles happen? Why should we even care? What's the whole point of this? Stephen Colbert, he's this uh, talk show host. He's like one of my favorite talk show hosts to follow. And uh, one of the things, if you don't know about his life, is that he lost his dad and his two brothers and his two friends in a plane plane crash accident uh, when he was 10 years old. 10 years old. Growing up with some of his brothers and uh, his dad. So you can imagine the kind of grief and he was doing this interview with GQ magazine, and the, the interviewer was curious about, how is it that you can be so joyful? Because if you also know, Stephen Colbert on his work laptop, he has this sign uh, on, his, uh, on his computer that says, joy is the most infallible sign of the existence of God. And so the interviewer was curious, like, how can you, as a person who's gone through so much grief and trauma in your life, how can you still believe in this? And Colbert was just kind of saying, talking about how it was his mom who encouraged his faith that even though she was sad and she had her moments, she wouldn't let the grief swallow her up. But instead, there was a joy still set before her that despite their suffering, there is an inseparable uh, form, uh, for, uh, it's inseparable from our joy to always understand our suffering in the light of eternity. And this made him accept the suffering, not in a defeated way, 
but in a hopeful way. And then he went on to say, I love the thing that I wish most had not happened. I love the thing that I wish most had not, not happened. I see joy as the salt sprinkled into our lives to bring out depth and complexity that all our lives possess. What else is holiness than, uh, than for our, our whole mind, body, and soul to look at the eternity that we live for? Maybe holiness is less about avoiding the wrong, but more about the awareness of the right direction, the true path to joy. You know what we use salt most for in this country? It's actually not for food. It's for the roads, that when it gets icy, you sprinkle all the salt so that there's safe passages. We don't really think about that much in California. It's salt help, helps melt the ice so that our cars can have safe passage. All throughout, uh, all throughout this passage, when you think about it, is this word for sin is actually this word for scandalon in Greek, which means a stumbling block. Something is standing in our way. Something is standing in our path like ice blocks on the road. And yet Jesus says the most stumbling block of all is not your sin, is not my brokenness, it's actually his son. So you and I, we, we might fall apart in our cruciform life. We might doubt God. We might sin. We might be in temptation. But the thing is, it's never as big of a scandal on as a scandal on the cross. I see it this way. God is a master artist. And um, I want to share this picture, last of all, here with you. There's this Japanese art form called kintsugi. And it's this whole idea of broken potent vessels being joined together with gold. And it's, the, it's an art form that expresses uh, acceptance of human flaws that even despite all our brokenness and the cracks that we possess, it can still be beautiful in the end. This is how I see the artist of God in our lives, who literally takes broken sinners, who should have their limbs cut off, who should have their eyes gouged out. But instead of all that, Jesus fills the gaps, not with gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus that became the true stumbling block that the God who is holy, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Because in the cross, Jesus was the one cut off from the heart of God so that you might be never taken away from the joy of the love of God himself. In all our imperfections, God binds us together by the blood of his son. This is God's heart towards you. And friends, if you know this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, pray with me.